Hello, this is the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. This is my podcast, The NATO Sessions, as a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. My guest today is comedian and writer and director and stuff, producer, J. Elvis Weinstein. I met him, Josh Weinstein, J. Elvis Weinstein, uh, at a uh, legendary hot tub show in Los Angeles at the Virgil. I was performing on the show. Uh, Andy Kindler was also on the show. Josh is friends with Andy Kindler. I am friends with Andy Kindler. And uh, we met and started talking and said, hey, let's do a show together in San Francisco. And Josh said, yeah, that'd be great. And then I followed up on it because my word is my palabra. And uh, and we had a show. We did a couple shows at the Cinecave at Lost Weekend Video recently, and they were really fun. So, and then we met up at the Clift Hotel to do some podcasting. Josh is a stand-up comedian and has been doing comedy since he was 15, uh, for 30 years almost. And uh, he was on Mystery Science Theater 3000, and he was a uh, writer and producer on Freaks and Geeks and America's Funniest Home Videos and like a bunch of other stuff. Uh, so it's an interesting career, very prolific, creative guy. Very funny. I had a good time talking to him about all the different things that a person can do in a career in comedy. And uh, so enjoy that. Before we get into it, I should say that um, the Jewish Community Center has been incredible at supporting this podcast. But their program, 3200 Stories, that this has been under the auspices of is, is coming to a close. So this is the final episode of the season and the final episode that is uh, being produced by the JCC. I haven't decided yet or figured out if and how the NATO sessions will continue. It can, it may. Uh, let me know if you want it to. Uh, email me through my website, natogreen.com, or hit me up on Twitter, at natogreen, or Facebook, or whatever, if you would like to keep hearing NATO sessions. But I am very grateful for the, how much support that they have given to build this thing, and I look forward to seeing what happens next for all of us and now here's the nato sessions with jay elvis weinstein here we are in in the clift hotel in your suite uh sitting at a table that has i would say 99 percent definitely had cocaine snorted off of it it kind of looks that way it is uh it, it is actually sugar from uh from coffee but it does have the whole room has a sort of cork coke snort snorted off of it feel right you could see this being having been used in like the Wolf of Wall Street or something. Yeah. Like I would like to add for your listeners that I was upgraded to this suite. It wasn't something that I actually uh, booked. Uh, right. I don't know why I feel a need to do that. I feel I, you know I need to deflate my ego at the top of the, <laughs> at the top of the podcast. Uh, I was ready to just go with like that we broke into somebody else's room. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so uh, so. We were just talking about my grandfather who just died, and and you were from uh, uh, Minneapolis, yeah, originally. originally. So, can you? What's your assessment of Midwestern Jews as a phenomenon? Um, well, the Midwestern Jews in Minnesota mostly came through the northern Minnesota Iron Range, like where Bob Dylan is from, and up up north northern Minnesota, Hibbing and Duluth, and uh, because it was uh, there was a huge mining boom up there and, and the jews tended to go up there and be merchants they and, needed bookkeepers uh, for the mines <laughs> needed bookkeepers from the mines and uh like my mom's grandpa was a rabbi actually in northern minnesota and 
Um, so it's so there's it's mostly when I was growing up there it was mostly a conservative Jewish scene. My great grandparents were like one of the started one of the big um, conservative synagogues because my great grandmother refused to sit separately from her husband in services at the Orthodox. So they broke off and started a, a conservative synagogue. They were part of a group. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of it's a you know a fairly liberal. Surprise. So they literally embodied that joke about the Jew on the island, but in the mining town. Right. <laughs> so then, they, you know, eventually they all migrated down to the Twin Cities from, from the Iron Range. Um, but uh, that's, that's kind of the story of Jews in Minnesota. My dad's side of the family, though, much stranger story. His, his ancestor in Russia apparently fucked some Russian officer's wife, got in trouble, and fled the country and came to the United States through New Orleans so he wouldn't be traced through New York and Ellis Island and worked his way up the Mississippi and got some homesteading land in South Dakota. So there were actually Jewish farmers in my family until they went broke very quickly and uh, then also migrated to Minneapolis. What were they farming? I don't know. You know, the, the, it, there's, so much, <laughs> there's so much legend in my family about it. There was that, that the legend was that there was this, that a man named Mayor Jacob Weinstein, which happened to be my father's name a couple generations later, he brought his family, and they lived in a soddy, you know, literally a sod house on in, in South Dakota, and he would go off and, air quote, commune with nature for months at a time and leave his family behind, apparently, which which was which set the tone for like generations of sort of lazy, irresponsible Weinstein men, <laughs> you know, um, so. Uh, I don't know what they ever farmed. I don't. I, I honestly don't know. But I know that they eventually. They may not have farmed at all. They may they, not have farmed they at just all. May have. They may have just had the land, you know. There's, but there's also like some legend about my great grandpa being helping bring the first steam tractor to South Dakota. So it's 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 a little it's a little blurry, and everyone's dead now. So it's it's hard to know what's real and what's legend. And um, my. But there are Jews in Minnesota. I think is the upshot of it. Well, in the. the Major breaking revelation is that there were Jews in South Dakota. If there, there are were, not, I don't, I don't think they're there anymore. <laughs> um, my suburb was—I I grew up in a suburb called St. Louis Park, Minnesota, which uh, was referred to at the time often as St. Jewish Park. It was sure. like the sort of Jewish ghetto suburb, and that's where Al Franken is from, and the Cone Brothers are from, and Thomas Friedman of the New York Times is from, and it was like this little Jewish intellectual pocket. That sprung forth a lot of people. That sounds like like uh, the the idea of uh, a a uh, like Tom Stoppard's travesties of you know, with you and Tom Friedman and the Cohen brothers and <laughs> Al Franken like all happening to be at the same place, being in high school together. Yeah, well, I was I was many years after both of them, but after all of them, but it was a, a continuum. Look, I'm still pitching my my, <laughs> no, my comedy. No, no, I need the truth. <laughs> um, so. Uh, it's there's family legends are so interesting. Like I was so my so my grandpa was in the was in World War II, and told us before he died that um, at the end of the war they were coming back, and they were at Le Havre, France, to get on the ship to come home, and they had rolled up in this jeep, and for some reason the jeep wasn't on the shipping manifest, and so the whoever was in charge of the ship was like, I'm sorry, I can't let you on the ship because you have this Jeep. 
and we don't have room for it, and it's not in the paper or whatever. And so they were like hell-bent to get home, and so they just buried the Jeep in the beach at Lahav, <laughs> and we're like, there is no Jeep. We're coming home now. <laughs> right. And so my, my brother and I like, there must be... There must be, there must be a way to verify this, like some news story about you know American army jeep discovered in the beach at La Havre, France, or whatever. Right. Uh, so and you know, can we investigate it, uh, or is it just something that might that got like got embellished and embellished and embellished, and you know they sold it to a guy and right. There was, it's not that complicated. Well, you know, not, you know, there's so much. I imagine there's so on the beaches of France, there must be so much military, you know, waste and surplus and just some scrap metal that ended up there after World War II and D-Day and and uh, that uh, probably one Jeep in the sand wasn't that big a uh, story. Right. And do you feel like do you feel like uh, Minnesotan Jewry, like in what way do does that fit or not fit popular? sort of cultural images of what Jews are like? It's It was still pretty Jewy. I mean, <laughs> it really was. I mean, I, I think, you know, anyone who, you know, who grew up in middle-class Judaism around the country, you know, I think they experienced the similar kind of life and, and, and kind of Jew zeitgeist. The people I've talked to, it's all, you know, it was all like, you know, in the 80s, if you had a bar mitzvah, you'd get, you know, Lucite bookends with your, with your with your initials scratching into them. Sure. Like everyone I know of my age, had, you know, got all these Lucite, you know, bar mitzvah presents, and it's like, there's, you know, I, I know that's a weird sort of totem for what we're talking about, but um, I, actually, I had a great uncle who had a Lucite picture frame. Did he? I bet business. he did a huge bar mitzvah chunk of his yeah. business. Yeah. I, uh, but uh, I was in a. For a, for a time, I was in a B'nai B'rith youth organization, AZA, it was called, and I was like a regional president, and so we'd have like these international conventions and, and you know, national conventions, and I'd go to like leadership camp one summer, and, and you know, and so I met Jewish kids my age from all over the country, and it really was pretty pretty much a similar vibe. Um, so uh, I, I, I also wanted to uh, uh, pick up the thread from... Our conversation last night over quesadillas about like the state of comedy. Yeah. Uh, what's and so to recap, you 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 last night you said that you think comedy is doing better now than it ever has been before. I think so. Yeah. I think there are more good and interesting comics than there has ever been. Um, and and uh, what do you think are the conditions that created that? My theory is, um, I'm. I started doing comedy in the late '80s, and in, in, in the comedy boom, quote unquote. Um, I was a teenager. I was 15 when in '87 when I started, and moved to Los Angeles in 1992 when that comedy boom was really just ending. And when I got to Los Angeles, and what I mean by comedy boom is that there were there were rooms all over the country. There was like too many comics, you know, who weren't good enough to fill all these rooms. And too much comedy on TV with not, an, you know, again, not enough good comics to be on all these stand-up shows. So I think people got burned out on just kind of crappy, shitty comedy. Not enough. It was like a land grab. Yeah. You know, I mean, just, it was just comedy at that time for so many people was just like the last out for a bad career choice they had made, you know. And so they could go on, you know, they could come up with a half hour and suddenly they could go on the road. 
Yeah, and so during that time, I grew up here in San Francisco, and during that time, there were five full-time county clubs within the city limits, and another, you know, ten, five or five or ten in the greater Bay Area. So, you could make a living. In you could work half the year just headlining Northern California clubs. Well, and that was true in Minneapolis. There was five full-time clubs just in Minneapolis, you know, and then there was this, uh, a circuit around the five-state area. So, yeah, the first few years of my career, I could I could just sort of exist largely in Minneapolis with occasional road weeks, you know. But that went away, um, thankfully, I think, for everyone involved, you know, and right. a, lot, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of comics went away, too. But when I moved to L.A. in 92... Um, it was like very much, it was two camps. It was the alternative scene was in full bloom then, you know, and the alternative scene was people, you know, it was Andy Kindler and Janine Garofalo and, and all, and all these people at Largo and Luna Park, these places that, you know, and it, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was performance art almost as much as it was comedy at that time. It was, it was like jokes were almost like taboo, like written material was kind of taboo, and people would go up on stage and just sort of shit their notebooks on the audience. And, you know, sometimes something would happen and sometimes something wouldn't, but they were going for something kind of real, I think, you know? And I was 20 when I moved to L.A., and I was kind of intimidated by that scene. I didn't really feel like I had... I was a good joke writer, but I wasn't... I didn't have that much to say about my life, and I didn't, you know, so I kind of backed off, and that's when I... And, you know, that's really when I kind of went, ended up being a TV writer for years and, you know, kept my toe in stand-up, but really my living became um, TV writing because um, I just didn't feel like I fit into that scene and I didn't like doing seven-minute sets at the improv because that was, that was just no fun for me. And um, so comedy wasn't that fun uh, when what, I got to LA. What were the, for in the, during the, that alt, per, alt period, what were the audiences like? Who were those people? The audiences were who we would now call hipsters. You know, it was it was its own little scene that was developing, and it is, and it and it's kind of a model for what I think like comedy, especially in LA, has become now, where the audiences and comics are all sort of there's it's a blurry line between the two. There's a lot of you know fans talking fans and comics and a community, and you know I think. You know, there are so many comedy nerds now that, you know, there are people who are just, you know, live in that scene and they know everyone and the comics know them. And, you know, it's 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 an interesting thing because it's not it's not a typical showbiz vibe for for L.A. It's a more supportive and a more artistic vibe than you would, I think, generally associate with L.A. So what I think happened was, you know, with the comedy boom crashing and now all these talented people sort of, you know, learning how to speak from their souls instead of their brain a little more. Um, I think the two art forms kind of have merged over the last several years where there are now all these people talking about interesting and personal things, but with punchlines, you know, who are being genuinely funny, who are, you know, who are actually crafting pieces of material around these ideas that aren't, you know, joke, 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 but they still have a payoff. They still have, you know, an, the intent of of being a piece of stand up. And how do you? How have you like navigated sort of balancing your your stand up voice and your writing voice? Um, poorly I think, <laughs> for the most part. I have I, I have a very I've I've developed a really strange relationship with stand up. 
you know, stand-up is kind of like golf in the sense that it's like I used to play golf and I wouldn't play that often, but I'd still get pissed at myself for sucking when I played, you know? So, like, I'd have this feeling like, no, you should, your chops should be there, you know, even though you, you know? And that's kind of like what stand-up is for me. I don't get to do it enough so that I feel like I, I have, like, complete mastery of my act at all times anymore, and that that makes me pissed at myself, you know? I always feel like I'm letting myself, whenever mm -hmm. I'm doing stuff that takes me away from stand-up, I feel like I'm slightly disappointing myself, even if it's something that I feel like is totally worthy. You know, I've been making documentaries, I've done all, all sorts of shit, but I still feel like I'm a stand-up directing a movie, or I feel like I'm a stand-up writing on a TV show, and so... It's it's so much my core identity that anytime I get too far from it, I feel like I'm I'm betraying myself in some way. So I, I'm try I, I try to find the balance of, you know, it's not like I'm gonna go back out on the road and and live that life again. So now I look for situations where I can do stand up in a you know where it's gonna be a pleasant situation like that. You know, like this weekend with you, it was like, you know, it was it was like. We met in LA. You said, "Hey, we should do a show in San, you know, in San Francisco," and you freakily followed up on it, <laughs> you know, which I was very pleasantly surprised that you did. And I was like, "Yeah, let's," you know. And I, and I remember telling you, "I was like, look, I don't want a pressure situation. I don't want to have to fill a big room. I want to go up and have, you know, a fun show." And um, that's kind of how I approach it. It's like I, if I don't have an act, I feel like lost. So I always feel like I have to have an act. So I'm always sort of writing jokes and adding to it, but I don't get to do enough stand-up to, to feel like I have the mastery that I once did, you know, of, of my material and just being able to step on stage on a moment's notice and go, you know. I have to, I have to if I'm doing a show now, I have to, like, kind of load it all into my head manually, like, all oh, right, I do that bit, and right, okay, right, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh What's the, like, what's the, is it, can you point to a moment that you think of as, like, peak J.L.'s Weinstein stand-up? Um, I, you know, I've done, it, it, if I had it, it was probably at Acme, Acme Comedy Club in Minneapolis, which is kind of my home club, and, you know, the one, the one club that I've, you know, throughout all the years, I've always gone back at least once a year to do a week of headlining, or, or I do this show with my friend Chris Bliss there where it's just he and I on stage the whole night and there's no MC or opener and it's just he and I come out at the beginning of the show, we both park on stage and then we tag team, you know, doing material, in, you know, 10 minutes at a time and interjecting with one another and, you know. Um, so that's been, you know, those I think some great moments have come there. But in terms of fame, I'm, not no, not in terms of fame. In yeah, terms no. of like, in terms of creativity and being the comic I want to be, it, they, you know, I, I had after I had can had cancer last year, I had a, a kidney removed, and three weeks later I was at Acme and I was like doing ten minutes of cancer material, and uh, that like that felt great to me. To me, it was like that. That to me is like where stand up is, you know both therapeutic and really interesting when it's you know when it's something that's completely fresh, completely intense and I can and I can translate it to the audience in a way that they're going to laugh at it, you know. And to what you were saying before like that there's that there's enough c cumulative mastery of 
the craft that that you can be confident that like I can apply this apparatus to uh, to you know whatever is coming at me in the world and right jokes going to come out. At yeah, some I mean, point. I've been writing jokes for you know thirty years now, so it's like I do you know there's a there's part you know my ego says as a joke writer. I feel, you know, very high, you know, upper percentile, you know, but in terms of just chops, I don't have the chops right now, you know, and, and, you know, I always, you know, that's always the struggle is keeping, keeping your chops up. So I, uh, uh, there, the, I was on this, wrote on the show, totally biased on FX and, uh, among other things, realized that I, I was not cut out to be a late night writer yeah. <laughs> because there, you know, that like I like writing, right? Um, and you know, I feel like I might be able to feel more at home writing on a scripted thing somehow right. when telling stories, but but just having to crank out jokes right. that were not in my voice, like that didn't like I'm not that guy. You know that yeah. that there's something that the people who the people who seem to do well in that environment are either people who like don't have a strong comedic point of view of their own and are sort of joke technicians, or people who are like big-hearted enough people that they can set their own point of view and ego aside and just apply the craft to some something else. Yeah, I'd like to think I'm the latter, you know? <laughs> but uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I it's. I've always been able to do it. I wrote. I was the head writer on uh, Greg Kinnear's late night show on NBC years ago, um, and uh, it's you and know, it's a factory job. You know, it's it, it it's, but it's it's kind you know, but it's. Did he have a? He didn't have a stand up background. No. no. And so what? What's it? What is it like writing jokes for someone who has not spent very much time practicing delivering jokes? It was interesting. He was scared, and so. I was the. I started out as, as a staff writer the first year. It was like my first guild writing job, and uh, I got kind of sick. I, I I wasn't a fan of the head writer, and and he the head writer had developed sort of a codependent relationship with Greg, where Greg would go, "I don't know if I like these jokes," and then the head writer would go, "Oh yeah, well then we'll give you a hundred more." And so, but Greg wasn't capable of making those decisions, you know. Right. So. Flooding him with more jokes was just like this weird act of spite, <laughs> you know, that wasn't helping the show. And so after a year, I kind of went, you know what, I, I, I'm going to leave. And and they said, well, don't leave. Why don't you become the head writer? What happened to the other guy? He left. <laughs> um, and he wasn't having a great time, so it wasn't it wasn't like a horrible like, right? You fucker, you took my job. It was kind of a phew for him. Yeah. Um, but um, and now they call then, him Jimmy became, Kimmel. No, <laughs> <laughs> but then you know. But then you know, it what the difference was was then I would take Greg Kinnear by the hand and he and I would give him a few of my you know I would do the selecting. Go, it's either this joke or this joke, and he go, I think that joke, and or he'd go, is that funny? And I go, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> And, you know, and sometimes I'd give him a read on it and, and he would pull it off, you know. But the other thing about Greg was he grew up overseas. He was like the son of a diplomat. So he grew up like in Lebanon and Greece. So he had like no American culture, you know, even pop cultural reference base. So it'd be like Laverne and who, you know. <laughs> like, so 
he really just started like it really just became almost puppetry at times where it was just like this is yeah this is the joke you should do you know do this do this and, and he trusted me and and you know it was a, it was a good relationship and then he started doing movies and it was over starting at 15 starting at 15 doing stand up yeah what is it like to be learning a craft and growing up at the same time um well i thought i had grown up so it wasn't <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't really an issue i was i was like a big guy i was basically i, I was like the size i am now but probably another 30 pounds heavier i was like a big kid and so i played at like i played to people like i was 22 probably um and i didn't do any material about being a kid because i learned very quick i started going on the road like in the dakotas when i was 16 you know i was playing like bars in beulah north dakota at 16 during spring break from high school so i learned very early on that you know telling some redneck in a bar <laughs> to shut the fuck up from a 16 year old is going to piss him off a lot more <laughs> than if you know someone in their tw- if someone they perceive as in their 20s or whatever is doing it so it was never an asset to me to play my age as part of my comedy identity so and uh you know and I was and I was you know not to not to be self-aggrandizing but I was like a pretty shockingly mature kid so so the comics of Minneapolis like accepted me as a peer like almost immediately you know and they saw that I was a good joke writer and I would give people tags to their jokes and you know and so it was really like immediately I felt like fuck high school this is my world you know and Mm -hmm. and and weirdly enough I got like I said accepted as a peer into that world like almost immediately and started getting you know opening and then middle work by the time I was 16 and it was just like I had found my thing for sure and then then when I was seventeen, we did Mystery Science Theater, and I want I want to get back to that. But then, like, what is there a moment of uh, like, you know, how your material or your approach like changed as you moved into your thirties? Oh yeah, my act was all third person, and when I started, it was all observational bullshit. It was all you know Seinfeld derivative kind of you know nineteen eighties observational. You know, it, it, you know, not all TV commercials, but of that, <laughs> of that gravitas of jokes, you know. Right. But I was a good joke writer, and and I started, you know, I would start doing political things. I did, you know, I, Bill Hicks became friends with me because of a, a Iraqi war joke I had done. He came, and I was middling for him, and he's like loved that joke, and then suddenly we were good friends. And um, this is Iraq one. This is Iraq one. Yes. What was the a, joke? The joke was about Scud missiles, and it was uh, a missile you can't aim. How, how do you sell that? <laughs> but you can't aim them. So what? You hate everybody. <laughs> um, so that I, that was the joke that Bill Hicks and I became friends with, and uh, and that was super exciting, you know. And there were there was guys who were you know there were heroes of mine who I became friends with along the way, you know, being. You know, and there were guys who, because I was so such an avid joke writer, would lo- you know would take me out as their middle, and we'd spend it all day during the week writing jokes and you know trying them out at night. Guys, you know, like Jeff Stilson, guys like mm-hmm. that would. So, um, you know, I that's that's what I always liked was, you know, once once I became a headliner, it kind of became less fun, you know, because then it's just kind of lonely, <laughs> you know. But I felt you know as, as a middle, it's like. 
you know, 30 minutes is easy, no pressure. There's, you know, someone to hang with during the day. We're writing jokes. Like, that was all great. But then it started to get, like, a lonelier and less fun existence when, when, when I was, you know, I was never, like, you know, a consistent national headliner. But I was, you know, because I started writing at that point. Right. At the point where I would have started to really get consistent headline stuff for him. But it wouldn't, you know, I was still a, I wasn't an A room headliner. I was a B room headliner. Yeah, the the um, I mean Hicks is part of what's behind the question for me because like you know like Hicks you know I'm forty Hicks yeah. died at whatever thirty two uh-huh. you know and like I grew up and still like you know so it, like he's so great so great and and now but now at forty when I look at his act it's like oh I remember being a younger person and having those feelings. Do you know what I right. mean? Oh yeah. No, and and he, like, like, you know, the great tragedy is that the world did not get to see 40 year old Hicks. <laughs> I agree. I think there was another, there was a whole other growth level of, of Bill. If, if when, when some of the rock star attitude would have sort of fallen away a little bit more. Right. And he would have settled in. I would, I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved to have seen what he, what he grew into. But, uh, but he was a—he was an interesting guy. There was so there was things, that, you know. He was so passionate and so, you know, like voracious on stage. But he also off stage, he was also kind of like this innocent soul, you know, and this really enthusiastic guy. And he wasn't like a jaded person. He was like, he was like an excited guy. He kind of liked life, and he, you know, I went guitar shopping with him once, and he, you know, and he was like so excited about the guitars, and you know, he played in a band and. You know, so it was uh, it was tragic. Generally open-hearted. You were a student of Hodgson, is that right? Yeah, uh, Hodgson, right when I started doing stand-up, uh, like maybe three months after I started, when I was 15, Joel, Joel Hodgson had been a big, a big comedy star in the early 80s. He had been on Letterman five times. He had been on Saturday Night Live five times. He had, you know, started getting sitcom offers. And then he kind of freaked out and quit. You know, he, and... Uh, moved back to Minnesota and, like, went into sort of seclusion, retirement kind of. And this is when he's, like, 24 or something. Um, you know, and he went, he, he went back and he started working for Tonka Toys, building GoBot robot uh, costumes for them and stuff like that. And he was building these little robot sculptures, uh, which ended up being very important for Mystery Science Theater. Um, but he, when he, he, a few months after I started doing comedy... He decided he was going to come back to comedy. So, and I, I was already, I was a big fan of him, so I was super excited. And and then he announced that he was going to teach this sort of creativity slash stand up class, which you know, he was totally unqualified to teach, which he admits now. But I was excited. Um, so my friend Barry and I, who was another kid my age, took this class, which was like maybe six weeks on a Wednesday night, and. Uh, it was just, you know, Joel's take on stand-up. And then he did a show, his sort of big official comeback show at a club in Minneapolis, and he had some of the people from the class open for him. And I was one of them. And then after that, Joel and I just started to become friends, and we started writing together, writing jokes during the day together. And then uh, a few local comics, we had started a, a, a uh, like a weekly writing group at a library conference room in, in, in uptown Minneapolis. And... Joel started. Joel started coming to that group, and then he selected Trace Bill, you and I to 
basically it was just like, hey, I'm going to do this TV show at a UHF station tomorrow. Do you want to come help? And he's going, sure. And it became Mystery Science Theater. And and it started on local television and then migrated. Yeah, local UHF station. And we did 20, 20 episodes, I think, there. And then built like a, a compilation, Best of Real. Uh, and this was right like at the moment that Comedy Central was starting. Or it was Comedy Channel at the time. So they needed programming. And we had the show that was basically a two-hour television show that I think the license fee for the first season was $35,000 an episode. So they got a two-hour show for thirty-five grand, And uh, it was one of the first shows on the original Comedy Channel. So it was kind of, it was a luck, you know. There, a lot of it was just timing, luck, you know. It all happened. And then how how was the transition from doing local UHF to doing we're being on the Comedy Channel? Uh, for me, that's when it all went to shit. Because, <laughs> uh, because it got very, they, uh, it got very businesslike. Um, and I got... I got screwed, basically. I got squeezed out of the actual part. You know, every, everyone, I, there were five of us, basically, who did the show originally on the UHF station, and four of them became business partners of, of the company. And they just decided, since I was 18, that they, they, you know, they could treat me like an... In, even though I was on the screen for every minute of the show and writing full-time, they felt like I should just be happy to be there. And, you know, that they, like, more and more started to treat me like an intern, you know, when we were off camera. And I was, like, and paying me less than Trace and paying me less than the secretary, you know. It was, like, really, like, basically trying to break my spirit, you know. And granted, I was a cocky young comic, and, you know, no one wants to hear a know-it-all 18-year-old or 17-year-old. I can understand why that's irritating. But it wasn't the full story, you know. It was literal age discrimination taking place. And I had this comedy world where I could, A, make more money, and B, get treated like a peer and with respect. So it was, it was you know, after the first season on Comedy Central, it was like, or Comedy Channel, it was like, it was kind of like, yeah, it's over, I think. Like, you know, they wanted me to leave, and I wanted to get out of there. How, how long did it take you to, I mean, have the, did those relationships recover? Yeah, well, the ones I wanted to did. Um, the uh, with Joel Hodgson and Trace Bilyeu, who were the other two original silhouettes, very dear friends. Trace is one of my very best friends, and Joel and Trace and I and two other people, Frank Conniff and Mary Jo Peel, we did this thing called Cinematic Titanic for six or seven years, starting in 2007, where we toured around the country and did a dozen DVDs, and so those relationships are all great. And then, you know, never made up with Jim Mallon, who was the executive producer, who kind of ultimately alienated every single other person from the show and made, you know, which rehabbed, you know, my big thing was with him. My big war was with Jim Mallon, and so I was an enemy of the people. And then over years, I went from being enemy of the people to Jim Mallon hating visionary. <laughs> you know, so people would, you know, once they'd leave the show, they'd sort of then come talk to me and go, yeah, you weren't wrong. <laughs> you know, so... You know, it's been a long, uh, a long healing process with a lot of those guys over the years. But and have Hobson you, have, and I have a really deep connection just because we go back so far. You know, and have you done that podcast of like 
all those people are being like, dude, you were really shitty to me back then. You know? No, but we've rehashed it so fucking much amongst ourselves over the yeah. years that it's just like, you know, it's there's only so much guile I can carry for a quarter century about a puppet show. You know? <laughs> it's like I'm so you know, I'm very happy I was a part of it. I don't regret leaving when I did. I didn't fit in with those guys really anyway at that time, you know, because for them it was like this was going to be, there was so much, e once we got on TV, there was so much ego there, and they they were so sure that they had fucking beat the system, and everyone in Hollywood's an idiot, and we're right, and we know how to, you know. Did you ever see that documentary Overnight? Mm -mm. It's really worth seeing. It's, it's about the guys who did Boondock Saints, this movie, and it's, and it's basically the story, the same kind of story where these guys get a break and Hollywood lavishes all this attention on them. And, and it's like this kind of group of guys from Boston and one of them had written the movie. And then like, you know, they became scenesters and like Harvey Weinstein bought him a bar and, you know, like he just, and then he became so cocky and so like, fuck Hollywood, we can do everything, you know? And then it's like, he's, you know, he was making, you know, he was getting his, buddies in this group to like do the soundtrack to the movie and it was like we can do everything we don't need these bastards you know and then it all just poof, blew away you know? right and it was that it was that kind of attitude that pervade mystery science theater originally too which was you know because we made the show with like eight people total you know on and off camera and so we thought you know what are these people in hollywood doing with their unions and real money <laughs> you, know? <laughs> so, it, you know it was weird when i got to hollywood and my first one of my first gigs was that later with greg kinnear and it's like a talk show two people talking at a desk and there's a hundred people putting the show on right like, what the hell is all, <laughs> all these people you know how did um going from uh so uh, there's a, there sometimes there's a word in another language that doesn't there's like perfectly sums up a feeling that that doesn't quite translate. Right. And there's a Spanish word fracaso, uh -huh. which means like to to come to catastrophic ruin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how did moving from that fracaso like influence your approach to subsequent writing jobs? Well, the big th I mean it was more of a personal defeat than a professional one. I felt that was the first time I had ever felt like rejected you know by by something in show business or in comedy you know everything else up to that point had been sort of ascending you know and at a pretty quick rate you know this is from you know from age 15 at an open stage to age 18 on a national tv show you know so um what i had to examine was how big a dick was i <laughs> you know how big a dick were they but I also had to go, no, I guess I was, you know, I, I was a problem. And I had a couple friends who weren't in the show who went, yeah, you got pretty arrogant, you know. And so, and I, and I took it to heart, you know. So, um, while I still retain a, a fair arrogance, I... Uh, it's totally deserved. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I deserve my arrogance. Um, I, you know, I just, it was, it, I learned more, it was more a lesson about, how to how to get along with people and how to work with people than it was a, a lesson of 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 comedy you know? right yeah i mean there's like it's uh that you you get uh a lot further in this business being easy to work with than being a genius 
Right. You know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know? And, and Which I have learned the hard way. <laughs> I don't know that I'm a genius, but I'm definitely not easy to work with. Yeah. And I think, I, I think I'm, I'm now, I'm fairly easy to work with, but I like being in charge, you know? And I've been a head writer and a showrunner and those, you know, and the, those are the situations that I, I realized that, you know, at a certain point I hated being a staff writer on TV shows because it just was boring and I, there wasn't enough for me to do, and there was too much sitting around, and too many lateral moves, and too many decisions that were being made that that I had no influence on. So, I re, at that point I started, you know, moving away, and you know, and uh, I took this job on. Uh, I, I had been the head writer of America's Funniest Home Videos for a couple of years when they got rid of Bob Saget, and it was John Fugel sang, and Daisy Fuentes were the hosts, and I saw I was the head writer of that, and they brought me in really to sort of desagatize the show. You know, and and make it, and I, you know, and gave me sort of free reign, not visually with the show, or you know, the aesthetic of the show still stayed like a sort of 1950s game variety show, but the actual jokes be started to become subvert, more subversive, and more, you know, and more, uh, more of a true comedy show, more, you know, more trying to build these packages of clips with a premise that binds them instead of just people skiing, winter fun, cats on their ass, you know. I was trying to find more clever ways to to put these clips together and to act and build comedy pieces out of them instead of just joke 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 joke, and uh, and writing a bunch of jokes about for John about Jesus as a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, that is an angle he tends to go back to. Um, and John was young at the time. John himself was sort of an open stager, and so he had this sort of he had a desire to protect this not yet existent credibility <laughs> that he had so he was kind of trying to be you know he was trying to maintain a, a level of cool while being the host of america's funniest home videos you know um but i like john a lot and daisy fuentes was like shockingly easy to work with and good at what she did you know limited but good um but the weird thing about that pretty invisible showbiz gig the one person who was watching that i found out was watching was judd apatow because he had just had a baby and he was home on Saturday nights when that show was then airing. And so when Paul Feig, who was, who was already a friend of mine, created Freaks and Geeks and they were staffing it, they brought me in and, and Judd like spent like 15 minutes telling me of all the things he loved about what I did on America's Funniest Home Videos. And I was like so flattered and shocked and it is still the only person in show business who's ever made any mention of that gig even though you didn't like five thousand episodes of it well i after i i did i did freaks and geeks and then i did a few years of episodic television and decided i didn't want to be a staff writer anymore and so i wanted to start writing pilots and so i got i, I had a few years i worked out this deal with america's funniest home videos where they would hire me as a consulting producer i could basically work from home one day a week they'd give me a full salary as if I was a writer, I'd get a writing credit on every show. Um, so, you know, because I'm a video mocking savant, basically. <laughs> so I can shit out a page of jokes about videos, you know, very easily, and I can write the intros. And so I would basically just write them a draft of the show in a day, and then they could use what they wanted, and, and it was all great. And in the meantime, I could pitch pilots and work, you know, do my pilot deals for a few years. Um, so that was a great situation, and I ended up with... Sounds you know, like a, the, the dream. It was kind of the dream. 
Um, you know, and so my name's on a couple hundred episodes of America's Funniest Home Videos that float around the world, and that started, you know, being bringing in some checks that afforded me the luxury to start, you know, doing documentaries and things like that. And so, why did you want to do documentaries? Because it's it was the quickest it it's the quickest route to making something. Um, you know, it, you don't have to. It's it's not. I I had sold a screenplay, and it was like a two year clusterfuck. To, you know, of just like waiting and, you know, this director wants to do it, but we have to wait a month to hear his notes. And then, oh, he doesn't want to do it. And, blah, 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 and um, you know, and then the writer's strike happened in 2007. And so the momentum went away. And then when we came back, the project was just barely on its last legs and it just kind of died. And it was like just two years of, you know, of nothing, you know, of, you know, I think I got some money for the script, but it was like I didn't make anything. And that was super frustrating. So, you know, documentaries were a much more direct route to me being able to, like, tell a story and get it on film and make a real thing. Hmm. Um, it's, it is a thing that that thing keeps coming up, like, you know, for comics that, that uh, like, how much having an idea and executing it matters, right. <laughs> you know. Uh, and finishing a thing like matters so much. Um, it does. I'm, I premiered this movie up here in San Francisco this weekend, and it was uh, you know it's it, it feels good to finish some something you know and something that you are can control you know and absolutely and the, and being a control freak is just part of who I am you know and the the older I get the more I realize that you know I have very my needs become more simple and clear you know which is. I'm happy when I'm making something, and that doesn't, you know, that stand-up, stand-up is included in that. Stand-up is part of making something. An act is always, is never done, you know? Right. Um, I need, my ego needs some form of attention, like, once a month. (laughs) (laughs) So if it's a stand-up gig or a film festival or a band gig or, you know, something, it's like, I need to build a podcast. A podcast, even, you know, but I, I sort of, it's sad and pathetic, but I need some fucking attention occasionally, and uh, and I otherwise I start you know I start getting depressed or panicky about something. So and and I think I mean there there's something about about the about the writer discipline about not being too precious about your material about knowing that you're gonna like write four times as many jokes as you need and dump most of them because they're crap, right? You know, and so I feel like getting into that kind of like groove rather than languishing over uh you know perfecting every joke forever yeah and my, my act has become you know what you saw last night is it's 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 you know it's much more personal now it's much more stories about things i've experienced and so those you know and that can be different from show to show because i try now it's more about stay in the moment on stage tell the story don't just recite you know stay in the moment and tell the story and you know you have jokes there as benchmarks along the way, but some nights some of them aren't going to get in and some nights they are. But, I, you know, I think of it as, you know, the cancer story, not the cancer piece, you know. Right. Because at some night, you know, some audiences don't want to hear as much about it. Some people, some audiences are into it, you know. So now it's, it's really, you know, my set list is really like, the cancer story or the jury story or the, you know, instead of bit, 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 bit. 
Yeah, people, people like occasionally I run into comics who are who are very like joke based, uh-huh. and it's just like my set list is four things. Do you know what I mean? Right. And people who have to remember, you know, seventy five jokes that just seems like just as a as a way of managing material. I don't understand how you can do that. Well, the only way you can do it is by being on stage most nights. You know, it really becomes muscle memory. You know. You know, at, when I was working all the time, I could do that. You know, I could, I could joke, 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 joke for forty-five minutes. But you know, but there's, you know, you know how it is where it's like if you miss one joke, that's the on ramp to a whole, you know, room full of material that you know, if you forgot that one in, that whole chunk kind of goes away that night. You know, you're starting work on another documentary, is that right? I am. I'm in the middle of editing it, and it's about uh, stand-up comedy in Asia, which is sort of becoming, which is kind of like there's a boom going on there that's not dissimilar to the 80s here right now, where there are a lot of people starting to do comic comedy, not that great at it yet, but there are audiences for it, and they're building, and the audience, you know, and so... You know, the, once once you know these guys start to get their own voice and stuff, there's you know there's there's going to be comedy scenes all over Asia. There's right now there's scenes in Hong Kong and Singapore and Philippines and like um you know more and more on mainland China. Though that's a slightly different style of comedy. And what uh, in English? Yeah, mostly in English, but there are Mandarin comics, and there are you know there are some some local, but it's uh, it's a lot of English expats right now. A lot of the comics are expats from Canada and from you know um, Australia and um, from America too. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot. In Hong Kong, it's weird. Hong Kong and Singapore are, are are different in the sense that Hong Kong, it's almost all expats, guys with jobs who aren't ever going to quit their job to be a stand-up, you know? So it's just, like, advanced hobby form for all these guys. Um, Singapore, it's a more... Singapore, which is a more English-speaking place in general than Hong Kong, in terms of there are more... um, The percentage of people who speak English in Singapore is higher than Hong Kong. Um, So there are actual sort of indigenous locals there starting to do stand-up. But it's it's very influenced by what they're seeing on the internet. It's all a lot of it's in a, a very influenced by Russell Peters right now. Mm. There's a lot of just racial stereotype comedy. You know, there's most of the guys' acts over there are. You know, there's a large "Where are you from?" section. You know, <laughs> you know, of crowd rap and all their acts because, you know, frankly. You get interesting answers when you're over there, cause, you know, because you know you'll do where are you from, and it'll be England, Pakistan, you know, and Puerto Rico or something, you know. And it's like, you know, there's so many people from all over the world doing business over there right now that you know it's you, it can be fruitful to do the where are you from, but it it's not good comedy. How did you find these people? Um, I found that I actually went on. Uh, I, the the framework of it is the the owner of Acme Comedy Club in Minneapolis is a guy named Louis Lee, who is a Hong Kong native, but moved to Minneapolis in the seventies, and uh, has been in the comedy scene that whole time. First as you know, running bars for someone else's clubs, and eventually opening 
Acme himself in like 1992. Um, and you know, by consensus, he it's Acme is one of the top three clubs in, in the country, according you know to a lot of comics I talk to. Um, and it's a great, great club. And and Lewis knows a lot about comedy, and he's done a lot for comics, and he's helped people like Lewis Black and Lewis C.K. and 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 Jim Gaffigan and all these people transfer you know translate from being big club acts to big theater acts. You know, he, you know, Louis C.K. went on The Tonight Show a, f a few weeks ago and l mentioned Louis Lee by name <laughs> as the guy who was the first guy who'd ever pay, paid him fairly, and Louis C.K. started crying when Louis handed him the check, you know. Um, so just a really honorable, great guy who really loves comedy and has been good for comedy. So he he booked this tour of three comics to go over to 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 do to do um, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Macau, and so I went along to sort of do a doc about this tour, and then as part of that doc, I explore these scenes in each of these places and see some of the local comics and interview them. And it's not a comprehensive look at all of Asian comedy, but it's a glimpse mm. into both the fact that this is a big growing scene, and also the sort of the experience that American comics have, the anxiety and you know the different things they learned of you know how how worried they were at first about whether their material would work, and then I think ultimately how surprised they were, how little adjustment they had to make for it to work. That's awesome. Uh, well, Josh, thanks a lot. I think we did it. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I have a and now let's get back to this doing all this coke on the table here. That was the NATO Sessions with J. Elvis Weinstein. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. The NATO Sessions is produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by DJ Real. Um, you can hear all the episodes on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. Uh, I'll talk to you. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.